Welcome to this week's message at Corner Bible Church. We're so glad that you could join us. If you'd like more information on our church, you could check us out at our website, cornerbiblechurch.com, or you can like or follow us on Facebook. Now here's this week's message. Thank you for listening. Uh, my name is Pastor Davis. I am one of the pastors here at Corner Bible Church, and I'm super excited we get to open up God's Word together today as we conclude our From Isolation to Togetherness series. If you have your Bibles, uh, please open them up. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 9 this morning. Matthew chapter 9, uh, verses 9 through 13. We're going to be spending our time there, and we'll read that in just a moment together. Um, as I mentioned, we've, for the past several weeks, we've been walking through our series on community, and we've talked about a lot of different things. We've talked about how we as human beings have a tendency to isolate from other people. And what we talked about over the past couple years, uh, through different world events, we've had that really happen in our lives where we have isolated. And we've talked about what community and how God has designed community for us as human beings within the confines of the church. We spent some time a few weeks ago talking through uh, Genesis chapter 1 and talking through God's intention for community, that when he looked down on his creation, the only thing he said that wasn't good was the fact that there was only one human, and he made Eve, and he saw that it was very good. We also talked about how, uh, we, how in John chapter 17, Jesus' final prayer in the garden was that man would be, uh, his belie- believers would be united just as God is united. As God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is one. He says Christians need to be one. And we wrestle with that because how many of you have preferences? Okay, and we have to lay down those preferences. We talked about that. And last week, Pastor Rich uh, walked through the one another's of Scripture, those 58 commands of love one another, pray for one another, bear one another's burdens, do not lie to one another. Talking about how much we need one another. But there's one aspect of community that we have not talked about yet, of togetherness that we have not really talked through yet. And it's one that, as I was doing my study this week, that we could really spend an entire series on, and maybe someday we will, but that is the idea of what does our togetherness with the world look like? What's our community with the world look like? How many of you ever wonder what your relationship to the world actually is, right? And you've struggled with that, okay? A few of us, what does that actually look like for us? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. And by no means is it going to be exhaustive, because like I said, there is a lot of stuff to this topic, but we are going to dive in this morning, and for that journey to start, look back down at your text where I had you turn a couple minutes ago in Matthew chapter 9. It says this, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician. 
but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you so much for this morning. God, I thank you for the ability you've given us to dive into your word, to spend time together worshiping with one another, as Pastor Mike talked about, through music. Father, I pray for us this morning as we approach this topic of what our relationship with the world looks like. God, help us to approach with open hearts. I'm sure there's some of us in here this morning, and I know I've been in that crowd myself, where we sometimes get, we get scared of what our relationship looks like. Maybe we don't know how to interact well. God, teach us to love your people. Teach us to love those in the world as you love us. And lead us closer to yourself this morning. In your name, amen. How many of you have ever had one of those subjects that if you knew you brought it up, maybe at the, your family, like Thanksgiving time, or maybe to some coworkers at work, it felt like you were going to be walking on some eggshells? It felt it was going to get really uncomfortable really quickly, okay? Yeah, a lot of us, right? A lot of us. Yeah, like, kind of like if I were to come up here and say, okay, COVID-19 vaccine opinions, go. <laughs> right? We'd have a billion different things. I, I saw, like, the wide eyes go like this from a bunch of people. My wife said not to say that, you know, but I'm totally kidding, totally kidding. But that's how I, when I think of community with the world, that phrase, community with the world, I think it's kind of like one of those topics a little bit. Because I think a lot of us, we kind of divide ourselves into two different camps when we hear the words community with the world. Some of us in here, when you hear community with the world or togetherness with the world, you are immediately repulsed by the idea. Because when you think of the world and community with it, you think of the agendas that the world has that you can't agree with, that we can't agree with. You think of the sinful actions that the world says are good, that the world takes part in, that we can't take part in. Maybe you even think of that verse, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. In fact, a lot of our reactions to community with the world can be one of extreme isolation where we're trying to isolate ourselves while the world does its thing over here, we're going to be over here in our bubbles. But there's another reaction to, to community with the world. The other extreme, you might be in here like, yes, community with the world is a great thing. All my friends are non-believers. And we take that to its ultimate extreme and we look just like the world. We look no different and we use that as an excuse to walk in sin. Like, sure, I was out with my buddies getting drunk and living in morality, but at least I invited them to church. We use it as a license for sin. See, truth be told, there's often two reactions when we think of community with the world. One of isolation that leads us away from the world and allows us to look at, use the, do the sin of judgment and look down on other people. And one of extreme acceptance that leads us into sin. 
And what Jesus does in this passage and many other passages throughout the New Testament is he teaches us the importance of walking the line of engagement with the world, caring for the brokenhearted and those who are far from God while maintaining your walk with Christ and your holiness before God. To be in the world not of the world. How many of you have heard that phrase before? To be in the world, not of the world. Be engaged in it. Practical relationships with people, loving, binding the brokenhearted, confronting darkness with light, but not taking part in the sinful agenda and worldview that the world propagates. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. What I want to do is I want to outline for us three aspects of what our relationship with the world looks like. Those three aspects are intentional, reflecting God's nature, and loving. Let's take a look at the first one with me this morning, intentional relationships. Take a look down at verse 9, where we started this morning in Matthew 9. Read it again here. It says, as Jesus passed from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. Now, if we had time this morning, we could take a look back at Matthew chapter 8, and we would see Jesus go on this, like, serial healing spree where he is healing the paralytic. He's healing uh, the blind guy. He's healing uh, the Roman centurion servant. We see him calm a storm. We see him do all these different things, and he moves on from that. The story totally changes And he comes up to a man by the name of Matthew, who was a tax collector. Now, if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about Matthew the tax collector and Simon the Zell. Anybody remember that? A couple people remember that? Okay. Tax collectors back in Jesus' day were not very well looked looked well upon. In fact, if you were a tax collector in that day in in Israel, you were seen as a collaborator with Rome. See, when the Romans came in, they took over all of Israel, and they set up Jewish tax collectors to extract taxes from their own people and give it back to the Romans. So you were not well looked upon if you were a Jewish tax collector. But they were also known as some of the worst sinners in that context, because a lot of these Jewish uh, tax collectors would go to, their, uh, go to their Jewish brethren and be like, hey, here's the ta- tax charge when it was supposed to be this much, and they actually charge him this much. And they give to the stuff that was Caesar's, and they pocketed all the rest. They were seen as swindlers, not so good people. They were the pariahs of society, and they were noticeably wealthier because of cheating the system off their own Jewish brothers. That's what's happening here. In fact, if you were to talk to the average Jewish person on the street and you were to ask them what the likelihood of a tax collector being a good person or being able to walk with God, they say 0%. They're the people in our culture that we think of would never understand the gospel or get the gospel, so we'd never even try. That was the tax collector's. And we see Jesus here flip the cultural script and goes directly up to Matthew and he says, follow me. 
follow me. He invites Matthew to leave his profession and follow after him. Now notice we don't see Jesus here throwing a trap grenade and hoping that Matthew gets interested in Scripture at some point. But he actually invites Matthew to come along the journey with him. Not to just hear the truth, but to experience the truth through Jesus' life. See, Jesus does something here, what I like to call incarnational community. Incarnational community, incarnational evangelism. Showing the truth by the way you live, not just the stuff you say. And he invites Matthew to come along with him. The truth is we see Jesus over and over again in this passage, in the Gospels, all over the place. He doesn't just come in, say something, hi, come to church, and he runs away. He builds personal, intentional relationships with people. The truth is we never see Jesus isolate himself from the world. He engages it. He confronts it. Compassion, truth, and love. In fact, in uh, Matthew chapter 28, he talks about this with our role in this, because just as we as Christians are not called to isolate from one another, but to be together, we as Christians are also called to follow Jesus' example here and engage the world. And he talks about this. You want to flip over to Matthew 28 with me. Keep your finger in Matthew 9. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus has gone to the cross. He uh, has risen from the dead, and he's getting ready to ascend into heaven, and he has one last talk with his disciples before he leaves. He says this. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, this is a pretty common verse that you've probably heard a lot if you've been in church or if you've been here for any length of time. We talk about this verse a lot because that's our commission. Love reached disciples is based out of this passage right here. But I think a lot of times when we look at this passage, we see that word go. Anybody see the word go on the page? Nod your head at me. We see the word go. How many of you could feel like you, it's an action verb right here? It's action. Go. You know, you could put like the imperative you at the very beginning uh, right there. And I think that is part of the context. But what's interesting is the Greek is actually slightly mistranslated here. It's actually a passive participle. You guys didn't know you were getting an English class when you came to church today. It's a passive participle. In fact, a more accurate translation is not the action word go, although that can be part of it. It's as you go. As you go into the world, make disciples of all nations. As you go into the world, teach them to observe all that I commanded you. And what Jesus is getting at here, he says, as you live your life, as you are at work, as you are at the PTA meeting, 
as you're on the court, as you're a parent listening to other parents who have their kids on the court, as you're at your family gathering, as you're in traffic, as you're at the grocery store, make disciples of all nations. See, Jesus' call for discipleship and evangelism is not just an action word, one-time thing, go. It's a lifestyle of building intentional relationships with people as God brings them to you in your life. The bottom line is your evangelism, the majority of your evangelism doesn't happen in these, this room here. You spend one hour a week here. 99% of your evangelism happens out there as you build relationships with people as you go. How many of you have ever heard the name Rosaria Butterfield? Anybody of you heard that name before? She's a really, really awesome person. She writes a lot of books and uh, those kind of things in the Christian circle. But many years ago, she was a liberal, lesbian, English and women's studies professor at a very liberal university. In fact, she was one of those people that Christians uh, didn't know how to engage with, so they didn't. In fact, most of Rosaria's uh, uh, conversations and most of Rosaria's interactions with Christian people was through the picket signs at pride parades. That's all she had. When people would talk about a loving God, she had no idea what they were talking about because she met his people. In fact, it was so bad for her in her experience with Christians that she decided she was going to start writing books and articles to discredit Christianity and religion in general, actually. And as she was working on a large book, she was writing articles, and she published one particular article where she got a lot of hate mail. From Christians, and it was a lot of accusations, and it was a lot of just hate coming her way. But there was one letter that was different. There was a letter from a pastor by the name of Ken Smith that reached out to her, did not accuse her, just asked questions. How she came to her conclusions? What research was she using? And finally, one question at the end was, would you like to come out to dinner with me and my wife? And she was so perplexed by this and with all the other letters that had stacked up of negativity that she actually wrote about this in, in her uh, testimony years later. She said this, Ken did not mock. He engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this will be good for my research. But something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. 
Hence, God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. We see a couple here reach out to Rosaria, who was seen as an enemy, very differently. They made an intentional relationship with her. They didn't treat her as a project, as something needed to be fixed, but they treated her as a person, as God cared for her. And they got to know her. And they loved her. And what's interesting, what happened, as time began to go by, a few months went by, Rosaria began to read the Bible, unprovoked by them. And she said she read it ravenously. Another few months went by as God did work. And she uh, started going to church, unprovoked by them. And another few months went by, she accepted Christ. Fast forward now several years, she's, in, she's married to a pastor, they have several kids together, she writes books and articles, not to discredit Christianity, but she writes books and articles on how to work with those who struggle with same-sex attraction. All because one couple decided to engage, make an intentional relationship, and care about somebody who had been rejected by everybody else. They decided to live the gospel, live their faith in front of her. They didn't treat her as a project, but they treated her and loved her as God cared for her. Church, when it comes to the unsaved people in your life, in my life, What do they know you for? What do they know you for? Do they know you for your political views first? Do they know you for only your hobbies? Or do they see Christ living through you? Do they interact with your faith through you in the practical day-to-day? You're creating intentional relationships with people who are hurting. That's the first one, intentional. But the second is reflective of God's nature. Take a look back down at our text in verse 10. It says, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So we see shortly after Jesus asked Matthew to follow him, we see Matthew come with him, and we see Matthew and Jesus have dinner together as they are getting to know each other, and we see all of Matthew's tax collector and sinner friends that were rejected by society be like, why is there this Jewish rabbi like chilling with Matthew? And they wanted to go see what was happening. The religious Pharisees and the religious people in Jesus' day would never be caught dead with these people. So when there was somebody actually reaching out and intentionally caring for them, that was attractive to them. Because the truth is, if you, when you show compassion and the love of Christ to people, that changes them. Changes them. 
Now, I think it's important here that I clarify something because love is one of those words in our culture that's gotten like hijacked a little bit. When I say loving people here, I don't mean agreeing, supporting, and joining into the lifestyle. That must be different. That must be separate. In fact, I would go so far to say is you can't be a light for Christ if you're taking part in the same sinful actions as the world does. You can't reflect Christ if you're reflecting the world. In fact, 1 John goes so far to say, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, that verse is not talking about loving the people. It's talking about the agendas, the sin patterns, and the values the world propagates. Talking about sin. If you are going to be an intentional light for Christ, and genuinely love people, you can't walk in sin. Just as you can't have true community with believers who are while you're walking in sin, you can't have true community with unbelievers while you walk in sin. How many of you ever heard from unbelievers, I could never be a Christian because they're all hypocrites? Okay, we've all heard that. Don't add to that stereotype. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. Ken and Floyd weren't perfect. And when they messed up, when we mess up, use it as an opportunity to show the forgiveness of God. <laughs> that, yeah, I messed up. And when God had to forgive me. See, the truth is, you might be the only Jesus that most people will see. So your relationship with them must be reflective of God's nature. And the final aspect of our relationship with the world is that it must be loving. Take a look down at verse 11 and 12. And when the Pharisees saw this, they saw Jesus eating with all these people, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. Now, the Pharisees see Jesus eating with all these people, and they look down on him in judgment. They're like, this looks really bad for you, Jesus. People are going to say all these things about you because you're hanging out with these people now. See, the Pharisees had their idea of evangelism was it happened at the church building. They'd wait there and they'd do their teaching and the, the sick, the, the people that are spiritually sick would come to them. But Jesus knew that the most loving thing that he could do was as a physician, you go to the sick and the hurting. You go to the broken in the community. That was the most loving thing he could do. He said, those who are well, those who are well, those who are walking with God have no need of physician, but those who are sick. Much like the uh, illustration of the first responder that uh, Pastor Rich used last week. Most of you have probably been never sitting at the mall in the food court eating your Kung Pao chicken at Panda Express, and all of a sudden the first responder jumps the handrail, tackles you, and starts doing chest compressions, right? You've probably never seen that. I hope not. If you do video, I think that'd be kind of funny. But you've probably never seen that. Nor do you see first responders chilling at the hospital when they hear of a big accident on I-94, like, I hope, they, I hope they make it out here. 
They go. The most loving thing they could do is go. We see Jesus living his values. Living the values of his Father. John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. How's it go? God loved the world that he gave his only son. He didn't have to, but he did. That whosoever believes in him should have eternal life. Romans 5.8 completes it. Christ demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, in the pit when you never thought you could get out, that's the moment he loved you. That's the moment he died for you. And Jesus lived that. Because just as it would be ridiculous for us to assume a loving doctor would not go near sick people, it's ridiculous for us to assume that a loving Christian would not, out of love, Run to the aid of the world that's in sin and spiritually sick. I'll tell you something that's been discouraging for me as a pastor. I see on Facebook a lot over these past several months, a lot of people uh, looking at how bad the world's getting. And sometimes you look out there and you're like, it's getting really bad. You're looking at Europe right now, it's like, this is bad. And the answer is, well, it's time to stock up on stuff. We're just going to sit out at the homestead, and we're not going to go out into this world and wait for, this, wait for Jesus to come back. I'm sorry, but that's sin. That's wrong. God's call on your life is to go. Yes, it's going to get bad. You know what that means? Time to put your boots on. It's time to get to work. Because it's coming. Time to move. In fact, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 17 through 20. Paul's talking. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. We know that verse. It's a famous verse. But he continues. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. God brought us back to himself, but he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, get this, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Once you have been reconciled, you are now an ambassador. You're now a foreign ambassador in a world that's foreign 
Christ's love. We're not con men for Jesus, living, giving out a bunch of facts to have, tell people to live by. We are incarnating the truth to people through the way we live. We're incarnating the truth as an ambassador. We can't wait for the world to come to us. We have to go to it. Maybe you're here this morning, you're like, Davis, I don't have the gift of evangelism. That's okay. Guess what? I don't either. God's gifted me as a disciple to take people from point B to point D. I'm not an evangelist. But that doesn't take away my call. And that doesn't take away your call either. In fact, uh, J.D. Greer, who is a pastor uh, in North Carolina, said, a spiritual gift is just a special proclivity or ability to do something that all Christians are called to do. I'll read that again. A spiritual gift is just a special proclivity to do something that all Christians are called to do. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are an ambassador. You are the incarnated representation of God's love and what it means to know God. So as we close here this morning, I have a couple questions for us, church. Ones we really need to weigh. This morning, are, we, are you in the group that has isolated, that has maybe, probably for good intentions, isolated our families away from the world so that we wouldn't be insulated against the things that are going? I think there is a place for that. I don't think that's totally wrong. But what would it look like for your family to engage with the world that is around you? What would it look like? It might be something as simple as just getting to know your neighbors, inviting them over, having a game night with your families and getting to know them, letting them see your faith through you. Maybe it's getting to know your coworkers, even the ones that you don't like. I hear that laugh because everybody has that coworker, right? And incarnating that truth to them. Or maybe you're in here this morning and you find yourself in the other group that says you follow Christ, that says you walk with Christ, but if you were to line up 10 people from the world and you next to them, nobody could tell the difference. And my challenge for you is to be different, to stand out, not go with the flow with the, what the world is propagating, but be different. My challenge is for you to take stock this morning, this afternoon, this evening with your family and take a look. What in me is wrong? What parts of the world have I let in? What do I need to repent of so that I can be different? Our relationship with the world must be different, it must be intentional must be reflective of God's nature. It must be loving. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you so much for how you have loved us, and how you've forgiven us, 
And we pray for us as you've given us the ministry of reconciliation, that we are ambassadors for you. God, help us to be good ambassadors. Help us to reach out, those of us who are isolated. And help us to stand out for those of us who look like the world. And let us represent you well. We thank you for what you want to do this week, this month, and this year. In your name, amen. If you need prayer, our prayer team will be right up here at the front. Uh, If not, you are dismissed. Have a fantastic week.